Welcome back to CityPod, the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 2, which continues our topic about religious change. Today you'll hear Part 2 of my brief discussions with academic leaders and researchers about this important topic. Our first guest on today's episode is Matt Tomlinson, an associate professor at the University of Oslo. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining me in the podcast today. I'm going to ask you a question to begin our discussion. From what you've learned from your most recent or past research, why do you think religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kind of societal impacts do these changes have? Thanks, Derek. So because I'm an anthropologist and not a theologian, I'm always looking to the social relations between humans for these answers. Of course, a theologian will look to an ultimate explanation like God's will, or for the project I'm working on, which is spiritualists in Australia, they would look at this as the way spirit works in the world. But as an anthropologist, I'm looking at the historical forces and the various social changes taking place that led to the rise of spiritualism and the way people encounter it today when it's much diminished in overall numbers. So spiritualism as a religion has a very specific birth date. It began on March 31st, 1848, when young sisters in a house in Hydesville, New York, were producing or had produced through them knocking sounds, rapping sounds, that the family took to be spiritual communication. They invited the neighbors in, they tried to communicate with the source of these knocks, and very quickly a story developed that this was the spirit of a man who had been murdered inside that house. What happened was the Fox sisters, who were part of this original event, became very popular mediums, and they started performing publicly. And many other people at the time got very interested in this. They had a sense that this was new proof of the reality of spiritual existence. It was closely linked to Christianity at the time, although right from the beginning there were dissenting voices saying that this was something new and different from Christianity. It does bear mentioning that spiritualism arose in the burned-over district of New York in the same rough time period as Seventh-day Adventism and Mormonism, so lots of religious ferment was going on anyway. What many historians have pointed to is two things that spiritualism worked especially well with. One was progressive political causes, including abolitionism before the Civil War and women's rights and the rights of American Indians. Many early spiritualists would give trance lectures in which they would address public audiences but speak as they understood it in the voice of spirits and comment on the issues of the day. And they often had a very progressive politics, what we'd call a very left-wing politics which was ahead of its time. And many historians have pointed to this as helping energize the movement. The cause for universal human justice working with this sense of new spiritual understandings. 
Another thing that many historians have pointed to is the new technologies of the era, including photography and telegraphy, which gave many people in 19th century America and 19th century England and Australia and elsewhere a real sense that they were able to communicate and see hidden realities in a way they never had before. So the camera opens up this idea of visual revelation beyond our eyesight, beyond our regular senses. And spirit photography takes off as the sort of riff on this idea of the revelation of the true behind appearances. And telegraphy introduces this idea that we can really communicate with genuinely absent others. So many historians have said that it's all of these things working together, religious ferment in upstate New York, the rise of new technologies, and progressive politics leads to this explosive development in the popularity of spiritualism. Next, we'll hear from Naomi Richman, who's a postdoctoral researcher at Burbeck, University of London. Thanks, Naomi, for meeting for this podcast. Let me ask you a question. From what you've learned from your research, why do you think religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kind of societal impacts do these changes have? Well, I think that it's a very complicated question and being in typical academic format, I'm going to say that as it's complicated, I'm not entirely sure I can satisfactorily answer it. Um, but I'm interested in this question of change in terms of, you know, when we get past the word change, what we mean is sort of something becoming something else. And where does that becoming come from? And what's the from that the thing has changed to. You know, when we say, oh, something has changed, we implicitly have in our minds something that it has changed from. And so I think that there's been much said about this within the anthropology of Christianity, which has really kind of informed my thinking about the topic, um, you know, really kind of inspired my work in a way. Much of it is to do with how in Pentecostalism, Pentecostals often report to have thrown away their past, gone through a radical transformation of change, and historically, at least initially, some scholars sort of questioned that and wondered, you know, is it really possible for somebody to totally change their life away? Especially when it seems that in some of the things that they're saying or doing, they're continuing some of those processes. Or, a rather sophisticated version of that argument, I think, is this idea that, well, by constantly saying that they've changed, they are implicitly engaging with the past, they are implicitly affirming the past, because they're actually affirming it through negation. So they are sort of still kind of trapped by this framework, which they can't move out of, of what they're changing from and what they're changing to. So how does that bring me to my research? Well, I've entered these debates slightly later on down the road where anthropology of Christianity is you know, very much thriving and lots of people have, have spoken about this. So I can only offer some very small comments on it. But the people that I study, when I study the deliverance movement and the deliverance movement particularly within Nigerian Pentecostal contexts, and many of the people I've studied and I've spoken to are 
quite young people. They're people who didn't convert necessarily. Perhaps they were born within the faith. Perhaps their parents had converted in the big revivals, but it was something that they just grew up with. And so they are still trying to find their feet. You know, typically they might want to differentiate themselves from their parents, as young people may want to do. And so they are looking for their own way of articulating and practicing their faith on the grounds of their own identity but it's not a kind of throwing away of the past because the past is still often their Pentecostal life. And so some of the people that I met had come to deliverance through prosperity often. So another kind of neo-Pentecostalism. And this Pentecostalism, the deliverance Pentecostalism, is a bit more austere. It's a bit more ascetic and it's very rigorous and it's very concerned with ideas around cleanliness, around holiness, which comes through in some ways from Wesleyan traditions and so on, but is overall very much preoccupied with Uh, evil spirits and possession, both in terms of demonic possession, but also in terms of a kind of possession that you can have from the Holy Spirit when you are what may be called slain in the spirit or fall on the floor. And so they have this sort of unique position in that they believe that it's both possible to have the Holy Spirit within you, be a Christian, you know, perhaps even be a Christian from birth, but have given your life to Christ of your own accord, and yet at the same time still be susceptible and at times victim to demonic possession and I think that this provides with us with a kind of interesting case study in which to revisit this question of continuity and ask ourselves okay well what is it that a they're changing from and b how dramatic is that change for them how are they conceiving their past as it were in relation to their present now and their future I think that it's helpful because it allows us to nuance a little bit what we mean by continuity and what we mean by change and look at how it sort of manifests in lots of the complicated and slightly nuanced forms in which it might be developing now. Pentecostal conversion is sort of plateauing and so perhaps it's not having the sort of revivalism that it had in the 70s and 80s and three phases before that the discontinuity that's very much inherent to the Christian message has these new formations and formulations and configurations as it evolves into the future and and unfolds, as it were. Our last guest to conclude part two of my brief discussions is Priscilla Garcia, an affiliate lecturer at the University of Cambridge. So from what you've learned from your research, why do you think religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kind of societal impacts do these changes have? Um, So as you know, I worked with Pentecostals uh, in Brazil from a mega church that are they have been recently very involved with with politics. And one of the things that people have argued is that politics um, or their political practice that has changed over years is precisely that before they were not politically organized or they actually were apolitical. So that's one of the areas that people believe that they had we see religious change uh, happening in Brazil, besides um, the diminishing of, of the number of Catholics 
And so through conversion is one of the, the things that they see, the, land, the religious landscape changing. Um, but if you look at the idea of change being connected to change in values, one of the areas that I see that actually have changed is how people engage with theological stances rather than politics. Um, and one, ways, one of the ways that I actually try to do this is to show the permanence of discourses of anti-communism and show the endurance of these discourses and show that political action has actually, one of the things that propels political action, political organization, is the endurance of this discourse. So the idea that communists, um, via some kind of progressive politics uh, that say that basically um, try to pass gay marriage, abortion laws, so changing policy that these Pentecostals perceive as being very progressive uh, is perceived as communism. So one of the core ideas behind organizing politically is precise to fight communism. So it's a way of transcending uh, in, in a sense. So I guess, I guess one ways that religious, uh, religion can change is if people started to think that modes of transcendence or better, better ways of actually reenact or work towards transcending, so transcending uh, what I call transcending evil. So one way to kind of um, not be engaged with practices that they would think that brings evil rather than uh, good. So again, if you look at religious values, is one area that you can actually start taking apart whether you change it or not. Um, one way I think that is crucial to that religious values actually have changed is through top-down policies. And I think that's one of the things that um, can affect religion. So when you change the law, a lot of religions kind of respond to that. And in Brazil particularly, this more public engagement with politics came after democracy. So then you have a change in practice due to a major change of reorganization of state governance. Um, so you see that happening, changing practice. But if you look at the value, the value kind of stayed the same. So I think you have to find a model in which you can kind of reunite belief and practice and see how you can probe what kind of change or, or how to locate change that doesn't make practice or belief kind of divorced from one another because I think they're connected. So on that venue, I think that how so religious change primarily starts when people um, think that there's better ways to realize values, so realize what they believe. And one of the things that I particularly is very important for me is how they actually talk about these beliefs. So I think theology is one of the ways you can actually start to locate these things. Um, so um, for me, the, the, the way I did it was to say, well, what to talk specifically about theological categories, so for example, salvation. Is this, do you still believe in salvation? Do you still believe in things like that? So they would articulate 
for me that um, salvation actually was due to faith but also good works. So yeah, so talking about salvation, salvation is one of the core things that they actually explained that is that the forms of transcendence became very apparent. Um, that you actually have to, there, there's something about transcendence and salvation that's quite connected. And one of the, the ways is like, okay, yeah, so, so politics is the one way we can transcend through um, getting this politics of progressives kind of like mm -hmm. win that, win over this, these things, so keeping in place certain policies and um, get other um, things actually voted for or elect our own people so they can kind of defend or keep in place what's there or actually change the law, but that's actually very difficult to do. Um, in another way, it's like internally to dismiss some of the things that actually were theology, but they believe that it's not actually helping these values to be realized. So one of the things that they do is like say that, well, there is this difference between custom and uh, doctrine, doctrine being something based on biblical authority, whereas custom is something that they believe is no longer um, so biblical, so it's no longer, it has to be dismissed. So it seems like if you look for theological categories, there is this idea that there are theological categories that are enduring and there are um, theological categories that are dismissed as history. So there is this opposition of history and um, theology. And I think that's one way you can, we can start understanding how rapid change occurs in society. Um, by actually locating what people understand as history and what people look at as, uh, or religious people understand as theology, because it feels like the debate, for example, in the Anglican Church about um, same-sex marriage is the same thing about, well, the stuff that was in the Bible that conservative says that it's not um, condemns as being sinful is actually bound to historical context. So I think one way is like people's interpretation of history and people's interpretation of theology, which again is a way of speaking about beliefs. May, um, can I ask you a question that was of quite a interest when I read about some of your work, and this is uh, the transition in fashion. Um, so you uh, research. Uh, Pentecostal group in Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, and this group had a tradition at one time for the women to dress very uh, plainly with makeup and wear dresses uh, that were long and uh, covering, you know, arms and legs and that type of thing. But then there was a transition at some point where, you know, in your in your work you were saying now. Um, they're very much into fashion and makeup and that type of thing. It, can you walk us through that change over time? Right. Um, so let me let me start by articulating what I think it occurred. I think what occurred was two things. 
so first an understanding that fashion no, no longer is connected to salvation, is connected to theology in a different way. So before fashion used to be, so being very modest actually is what connected people to heaven, is how actually it was a form of transcendence, transcending evil, transcending the world through being modest. So modesty was key. But then what happens is some kind of, I think it's top-down influence, so societal influence on the church. So some people have argued that this is actually like marketing strategies, uh, but I think it's actually an understanding that if we keep doing this modesty, actually people are going to be, so outsiders are going to be perceiving us as being backwards, as being intolerant, as being um, like type of like fanatics. So they actually expressed a lot of fear of that. So they started to rework how they could actually, it would be better to not have these kind of um, impressions circulating in society about them. And their preoccupation was precisely that they wouldn't be able to evangelize and to actually continue doing the work. So you see the continuity of the same way, like the way they, the, the people who were very modest, they were actually were doing a lot of mission, a lot of church planting, a lot of evangelization. So now the project of evangelization actually happens through you being very fashionable and you show interest in secular fashion as to attract newcomers to the church. So in the way they talk about it is precisely dismissing the way that these people uh, used modesty as being legalistic or being following customs from you know 19th century early uh, immigrants um, and 19th century f fashion and ideas of what the women supposed to look like what men are supposed to look like very a uh, lot of very strict societal rules that actually had fallen a long time ago in the secular world so they started to see like we need to kind of mimic the, the secular world in, in some ways um, in, so that we can actually show the people that we're not this backward, we're not fanatics. And then one way they did that is like saying it's custom what they did and saying like this was bound to historical context. So every time you have a, this, a, a rework of a theological concept, that's how change starts. You start to rework theological concept. And in this reworking of a theological concept, you then conclude that there is a big schism between history and theology, and theology being the thing that is unchanged or based on this biblical authority or in other religions might be a sacred text or a, a sacred figure or exemplars, but you have something that is unchanged and that's connected to the nature of God, that's why it's pure, and then you have something that's changeable, which is history, which is something more fluid that is working also inside religion. So people start to separate that. And I think that's one of the, so it's almost like a conscious exercise of that, what that separation actually brings to them and to projects of you know, higher values. So for example, the people that I worked with, they had this idea that they here on earth to kind of build the kingdom and building the kingdom is actually evangelizing people, doing mass evangelization, converting others. So it's almost like every time like, people start to ask like, what, how this, how does this value get to be better realized? How can we work this out? 
in a better way. And obviously, answering this question is precisely bound to historical and social contexts. And one of um, the products of this is precisely uh, the rework of what is theological and what is historical. And this is a very discourse of that we see secular society also engaging. Um, so when we're talking about change, we're talking at one level, rapid change because people want to cut up with what larger society is doing, but on the other hand, they don't want, they have some kind of restriction so that it can be theological. So it's this kind of like duality of, so that's why you can see very rapid change in certain contexts where people feel they have to cut up with, um, to catch up with um, what society is doing. And I guess it goes on to the idea of values as well. Why would you want to catch up with what society is doing? And for the people that I worked with, is that so that you can influence society, which is the primary goal of actually being uh, a Christian in the first place. So that at the end, everyone will um, be saved, and we're here doing our, our task of human life, because they believe like God has created people to kind of be Christians and then be saved. So then it, the whole time kind of like goes back, history gets into its right place. Um, yeah, I think that's one of... Well, thank you for... Uh doing the podcast today. It's been great to learn more about your work, and I hope that those who hear this podcast will be drawn to read more and more about uh, what you're uh, unfolding, and uh, thanks a lot for uh, coming, coming to do this. Thank you. Thanks to our guests who joined us for this episode. And thanks to all our listeners. Please share the link in this podcast to your friends, family, and colleagues. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. CityPod is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and funded by the John Templeton Foundation. Special thanks to Lily Baldwin for her editorial work.